I'm a dude, and I'm inviting you to join me on a podcast about brews. Does that include stouts? Yes. Yes, of course it includes stouts. Like I was saying, join us every Saturday on the journey hey, hey, into... Hey, co- wait a minute. Do you, do you guys do anything about, like, IPAs? Yes. Like that? Yes, of, yes, of, yes, we do IPAs. Okay. It's, okay. It, yes. Anyway, join us on the Journey into Comics Network for Brews with Dudes. Whoa, whoa, po- hey, hey, do you... Have you guys ever... Do you care if I bring some Zima on? Yes, I care if you bring Zima. Zima doesn't count. Zima... Oh. Zima... Dr. Dongo. Anyway, join us every Saturday for a podcast that delves into the craft brew world. The following is a Journey to Comics Network production. Hey, hey, this is Josh Richmond, and you are listening to the Voice of Survival podcast, exclusively on the Journey into Comics Network. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Voice of Survival podcast. As the introduction said, I am your host, Nate. Episode 24 is here, and I have a very special guest joining us via Skype all the way from Michigan. Welcome, Mara Powell. How are you? Did I say that right? Yes, you did. It's Hi. Mara, not Mara. Yeah, okay. you got it right. Excellent. I don't, I don't mind Mara. The only uh, real, I guess, problem I have is people call me Maria. Ew. I don't know how you Obviously draw that. Obviously, no eye in here. But. Yeah, there's not an eye. There's not an eye at all. No. <laughs> so, for our listeners who don't know how our journeys are at all interconnected, because it, it's definitely like, uh, wait, how does he know this person? So, uh, you actually be like started following our band on Instagram probably like a year and a half ago, I would say. Yeah, and, probably a year and a half too. Yeah, and, sounds right. And you were like championing us to end up in Detroit because that's kind of like where you're from or in that area. So mm-hmm. we were trying to constantly get into the Detroit scene, and it's difficult. It's not something you just – you have to know somebody, essentially. We met this guy, mm-hmm. Tim Harrison. He's a great fella. He actually booked us in Detroit, and you guys came and saw us. And it was actually like really cool to have people there that we'd never officially met, or we, we just kind of like had some of this Instagram interaction, as it were. Right. Uh but it was like definitely a surreal experience for us there. So we met you then, and we've kind of been Facebook friends ever since, and and just kind of like I've I've followed your journey and whatnot. So that's how we met. What did you take away from that first, like the first experience seeing our band live and whatnot? Uh, was there anything you took away from that evening? I guess is where I'll start. Well, I, I mean, first off, I just want to say you guys, like me and my friends, had such a blast. We had so much fun. Uh, watching you guys play it was a weird night the night before or the 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 whole night leading up to it i guess um definitely 
<laughs> but uh, I mean, you 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 guys came up to me and said hi and gave me the sticker and. I, I thought that it was real cool of you to do that and that you recognized me too from Instagram and just, yeah, we had so much fun. And I mean, piano misfits, how can you go wrong? That was just, well, I'm, like I said, a blast. Oh, I'm glad we made a lasting impression. Uh, of course. But it's interesting because to kind of fast forward and we're going to kind of um, Tarantino this a little bit because I'm going to kind of <laughs> say what you're currently doing in your world. Because this is what mm-hmm. drew me in. I'm like scrolling Facebook a couple weeks ago, and you posted something that I never connected the dots. It's like sometimes I see things on Facebook and I don't really dive in super deep or think about them. But you were talking about being an independent filmmaker. And mm-hmm. as soon as I saw those words, I was like, I need to know her story. Let's make this happen. So <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. Are you born and raised in Detroit in that area? Is this where you're from? Have you moved around? Um, no, I, I've, I was born in Detroit, and I'm, I'm still here. I'm in a suburb right now, but yeah, I've, I've been here my whole life. Excellent. What was growing up in Detroit like? Because, you know, honestly, you look at the way that the auto industry and everything that, like, people typically, I think, and... I'm sure you also get this. There's a great misconception about Detroit that it's like a really fucking dangerous place to be all the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that when we were there, honestly. Like, I, I know we were in like technically Ferndale, but it didn't yeah, seem very different vibe in Ferndale. I will say than when you get downtown. Um, and it's and it has changed over the years. Uh, we have yeah you know, a lot. The gentrification obviously kind of changed things. That's happened over the past decade. Um, I, now, I didn't grow up in the city. I'm in the suburbs, so there's that. I mean, I guess it depends on what area you're from. Okay. Some areas are rougher than others. Totally. So growing up in the suburb of Detroit, what drew you into like being a creator? Were you always a creator at a very young age? Is it kind of like what you did to escape your surroundings was to get into because I'm guessing that you didn't just like at the age of three go, I'm going to be an independent filmmaker. Like you, there were obviously some decisions that had to lead us there. So what was like the first I mean, thing you got into? I mean, it's complex because I do remember being, you know, that age and becoming a film fan for the first time. From the fir- you know, first things I was exposed to, my parents were huge movie fans. So we always were renting stuff like, my my mom was one of the first people I ever knew who had a net Netflix when they would send out the DVDs. Excellent. And we Old school. Get like five at a time. And everyone, that was just like wild. That was back in like 2000, I think, whenever Netflix first started. Yeah. So we've always been, a, you know, a movie family. And it's, I kind of feel like on some level, even at that young age, like I'm five watching, you know, Labyrinth over and over again. And How- I, and I, Knew at that point, and some level, I wanted to make movies. Okay, so this this interview is set in stone that it was something that was meant to happen. And it's interesting because it's Friday the 13th, and I promise I'm not like going to tangent too far away, but of all the movies for you to bring up, Labyrinth, I literally watched yesterday. Oh my goodness. So uh, <laughs> it's very crazy. Veronica's son, Oliver, loves Labyrinth, and he's been like wanting to get dressed up and have his makeup done like David Bowie. 
at the age oh, of four yeah. and a half, and it's amazing. And he like kind of knows the words and the dances already. And I'm like, what is going on? This is insane. Yeah. I've never seen a little person act like that. That's crazy. But Labyrinth. So I feel like within this all encompassing question, was that the first movie that really drew you into loving film? Is that the first one that really resonates in your memory as the thing that changed you or do you have others that are kind of also responsible for, for your journey, I guess? Um, it's one of the, it's one of the big ones. I would say another one would be sleeping beauty, even though it's uh, animated still that the, the mood of that and the aesthetic is very cinematic. Um, and I really responded to that when I was young. And then the Lost Boys was another one. I would say those are the top three that, like, when I would think about, you know, um, really getting into it for the first time. You and, start and to dissect movies a little bit more than just watching them and going, okay, that was great. Like, you're starting to look at how they do their effects and probably getting into, like, wait, how did yes. they even make that movie magic happen? Yes. And yeah. you wanted to pull, I'm guessing, the veneer back and say, okay, let's really, like, figure this out. So mm -hmm. obviously at five and six, you're probably not like getting behind a camcorder and, and shooting a lot of things. Um, were there other parts of this along the way? Did you like get into art? I mean, being into film, I feel like you can almost open up any avenue music. There's, there's a lot of different things that can draw yeah. you through being a filmmaker. Yeah, I think, I think I started probably like writing stories when I was very young. Um, when I was in high school, I did photography. I, the filmmaking, by the time I had got to high school, it was when I was really like, this is what I want to do. But I didn't have really any anything to do it with. I didn't have a camera or any anything. You had all so, the drive and none of the means, as it were. Exactly. So a lot of it was, I, I wrote a lot and I, I did photography. Um I, when I right out of high school, I did go to a film school that they we have here in, in Michigan called the uh, Motion Picture Institute of Michigan. But I I don't know what happened. I guess I I, I, I didn't quite. It wasn't the quite experience I was looking for. Let's just put it that way. Okay, um, I'm guessing you probably went there. And you maybe had some expectations of how things would be taught to you and it would be a little bit more hands-on. And again, I, I've never went there, but um, it's a film school, so I can only assume it was a lot more textbook. You're reading a lot. You're like just learning through reading in books. Is that is that accurate to your experience? Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, it was, it was like that. Um, when it came time to do some, some practical work, it, I, I guess I didn't feel as, um, I didn't feel like I really had a quite what I should have had at that point to be able to really do what I needed to do. Um, and I don't know if it was, if it was the school's fault or my own, it's just what was happening in my own life at that time. But, um, I just, for whatever, whatever reason, I wasn't really prepared to do, to do what I had to do. Um, okay. so it took, it took a while after that for me to, I guess, realize that, no, this is really what I want to do and I have to do it. It's, uh, it was one of those things where I think I was, maybe I was too scared to go through with it, thought it was going to be too much work or 
was going to um, somehow make me face some rejection or something. But as I had more life experience and got older, you just kind of, the fear of not doing is becomes greater than the fear of actually anything that could happen from doing. Cause like so, the worst that happens from trying it is failure, which is the, almost the same in the same vein of like not doing it at all. So why not just do it and see what happens? Cause what if you exactly. succeed is the better question. Yeah. Like, and maybe that's the eternal optimist in me. But I'm always looking at the like, okay, we can turn any negative into a positive. We just have to like look at the perspective of the whole thing and what can we change and what can we do differently. So uh, I want to go back a little bit here. We're we're starting to get closer into like that, that, you know, your attempt at college and learning at a greater level. But I want to peel this back a little bit more to like the family side of things. You said your mom, you said your dad. Are you an only child? Um, No, I have a sister as well. Excellent. Younger sister. A younger sister. Uh, so how did how did she and you grow? How was growing up with a younger sibling like that? Oh, I loved it. Excellent. It you guys like, are best friends. Yeah, I, when my when my mom and dad said you're going to have a little sister, I was like, great. I have a friend. I have a captive friend. Built-in friend. To, yeah, and someone to. Well, it's it's funny that you mention it because when she was a very very small baby and I was like five. Um, around that time of getting into really getting into movies and stuff, I would always kind of create little stories and little shows and like and perform them for her. That's awesome. And she was my first. She cracked up and loved it. So she was my first audience to where I was like, okay. <clears throat> so you had a little bit of a performing bug in you too, actually. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay, so then. Growing up, did you go through like school theater and stuff? Did you do any of those things? No, I didn't actually. I in in middle school, I had tried out for a couple plays and I I never made it and I got very discouraged and never tried again. Okay, uh, it's it's hard, especially at a young age, to face any kind of rejection or like yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because I don't remember what podcast I was listening to that becomes a real legit problem in my life. You hear so many different people saying things that you don't remember where it comes from. Um, but they were talking about being rejected and, oh, it was, I was listening to Talking Tunes, uh, with Rob Paulson. He's a voice and uh, actor. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I know him. Uh, I, he did pinky, I think from pinky in the brain. So, mm-hmm. uh, he was talking about rejection and he said, instead of just like being down on himself and giving up, he would call places and be like, well, why didn't you pick me? And he's like, I know typically you don't do that. Like you shouldn't go ask that question. Most people find that unprofessional. Yeah. But he said what he would find is more times than not, they were like, you're actually better than what we need. Like, and and, wow. and and you're wasting your time with us. You could be getting bigger jobs. You could be doing more. And that inspired him to go, oh, well, it's not always when you're being rejected. It's not always about you being rejected. Sometimes you're being rejected because you're better than what you expect. So, again, wow. it's that whole, again, you look at the change of the perspective. So... Back to doing movies. What's the first film? When did you like attempt it for the first time? Well, the first time I attempted it was when I was going to MPI. Um, I had shot one scene, and it was a disaster of a day because the location I was uh, had locked down. I, there was miscommunication, and when I got there, they didn't. They weren't expecting me, and they weren't going to let me in. And I had to pretty much, I had to call everyone and cancel. Oh, no. And a 
couple of the uh, the people the crew I had with me and one of the actors who was with me was like let's let's do this one other scene just so we have something in the can and we did that was the only thing that ever got shot and um, yeah it was, a, it was that was a big disappointment and that was a discouraging day so I think that was something else that kind of made me not pursue this for a while. Okay. So how long is the gap? You, you said that you did, you don't pursue this for a while. Uh, the way that kind of sounds to me, you left the college to do film and you kind of just said to the wind with my dreams for a bit and went to do yeah. other things. Yeah, I did. I did. It had been, um, well, this was in, I went to MPI in 2001. Okay. So yeah, I started, uh, Working seriously on the short that I did last year, about a, maybe two years ago at this point. So, fifteen years, I did. A, I I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in library and information science, and I became uh, an archivist, and I've been doing that for a while. And oh that's what gosh. I was like. Once I was in, you know, done with getting my master's degree. I started thinking like, okay, now, now what? And I just, the movie that I want, was trying to shoot back in 2001 just was just, just pounding me in the head. Saying, hey, so, this is unfinished business. Yes. And this is something that needs to be achieved. It's funny because I'm like, again, totally new to all the information you're giving me. And I hear that you're an archivist and... I don't even you. What did you say your degree was in again? One more time for the slower people in the room. Uh, library me. and information science. What in the world do you do with library and information science? Does that literally take you down the path of becoming an archivist and and archiving? I'm guessing documents of sort. Yeah, it's either that or a librarian. Okay. Did so, you do the librarian route at all? No. I didn't. I wanted to be an archivist because I thought that was more fun. <laughs> it sounds cooler. <laughs> I wanted to be Indiana Jones, I guess. Yes, that's awesome. Uh, you, you know, archivist sounds cool, too, because you think about, um, I feel like that's like always in a movie. Funny that we're talking about movies, too, because like it's like we got to go to the archivist. He's going to tell us the answer. She's going to give us the information we need to solve this puzzle. Do you feel like that ever? Do people come to you and say, like, I'm looking for a specific document? but I have no idea how to tell you how to find it. Of course. Oh, oh yeah. man. That, it's, that's the coolest thing about being an archivist is that you're, you're, you get to play detective essentially. And it, and it happens in, in that way. And it happens in the opposite way too, to where as an archivist, I will, uh, I, I'm like a steward of the collections so I might be presented with a document or a material and I need to figure out what the hell it is and how it relates to this collection so I can I can appropriately file it away somewhere so someone can find it later. Whoa. So you are like playing legit detective with all these different files and different cases that you do. What are some of the, I guess, interesting challenges of that job? I feel like there it isn't just as easy as like, I'm trying to figure this out, and I'm going on this little bit of detective work. Do sometimes these cases take months, maybe even years to crack? I mean, it can. Some things, honestly, you're never going to crack, too. Whoa. I mean, for example, I, for one, of my, uh, one of the jobs I had, 
I'm trying to identify people in photos. Some of these photos are over almost 100 years old, and they're like little kids at the at the playground, and it's like we're not going to find out those names. But so I mean, I guess it's, it, it you kind of pick what you're going to research and, and get based on what who is going to be using the materials. That makes sense. Man. What's the most I, I, I kind I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I feel like it's a formality, yeah. a, a part of this. What is the most rewarding part of your job? Obviously, it's got to be the the satisfaction of once you lock something in and you're certain about the answer to the question you've been presented. The, the most I, I think the most rewarding thing is when someone doesn't really maybe understand what an archive is or what a, what an archivist does and then they find themselves needing that the services of an archivist and I'm able to provide them with the information that they need and they are happy with that and then they learn a little bit about what an archivist is and what an archives is and they go away and Kind of being like, wow, I didn't even know this thing existed, and it just helped me so much. It validates you because it sh- it says that you're picking a you've chosen a career path that is bettering people because you're you're not only helping them but you're also giving them the information of like, hey, look at this important task you didn't know someone in the world has to do. Of course. Uh, so that's got to be absolutely validating for you. So I'm guessing. It is. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it is. Um, it's. I, I've just. I've always been someone who likes to do research and wants to know the truth and and find information. And I mean, it it goes all the way back to to me being a kid and and watching Labyrinth and wanting to know how did they do the chili down scene. You oh know? man, and with the black felt. Exactly. Crazy. So, so, I mean, it, it's all that. It's like I, I kind of feel it's, it's that, but in, in a different way because I'm, I'm, I want to be able to help to make things accessible so that other people can find them. Man, you're like the seeker of knowledge so you can be the holder of knowledge. That's awesome. That's right. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I'm guessing that you're as an archivist, you don't have a lot of time to be bored. I don't think that would probably be the right word. I feel like it might be monotonous to do a lot of like the searching and digging, but you're never just like, well, I guess this eventually this case will solve itself or whatever. So even though it's a, even though it's not like a boring gig, I'm guessing the monotony of in being in research and, and kind of having a pattern of how you look for things almost led you to be stuck in the mindset of secretly like, hey, remember that movie you were going to make? Hey, remember that... Uh, film you were working on a couple years ago do you want to come back to it was it like a calling screaming at you amidst you doing the archive work was there a moment that shifted and forced you to think about getting back to the movie route or was it just a culmination of things um i would say yes and no i mean first off i i i got into wanting to become an archivist because of my of my love for movies. I originally thought I could be a film archivist, which I, I still can. It's just there are literally no film archives in Detroit. I have to move out to L.A. But um, so that was always in the back of my mind that if I do this, I can still 
somehow work with film or be involved in movies. And then I would say kind of, you know, referring to what you said about, was it screaming at me or, you know, the, the, the tedium of the job? Yes. Uh, there are, there were, I would say right after I graduated and I was working, I, in a tedious job, it like, I, like you said, it's not really boring, but it does get tedious was the word I like to use. And I'm just thinking and I'm imagining and I'm, and I'm looking at these documents from, uh, it was the seventies I was looking at and photos and I was feeling, and it was in the same area I was in. So I was feeling very just, um, surrounded in that decade and almost to the point where I felt like I had tried time traveled to the seventies. Like if I walked out onto the city, it would be Detroit of 1976, not of 2000, whatever it was. And I kept thinking that'd be a great movie. Oh yeah. The archivist that accidentally time travels because she's looking, she's like too much in the mind frame of the decade she's in and doesn't know. And, and I never wrote anything yet that has to do with that. But I would say that was one of the things that I was like, man, I'm still getting all these ideas. Why don't I, why am I just like shutting them up? There's no point. So then you decide let's embrace them. Yes. Do you search out like, I, I, I guess it's my best question would be, where do you start when you decide like I'm doing this? Like what was your first step taken towards being an independent filmmaker officially? Well, my first step, um, I went back to the two scripts that I wrote back in 2001 and cause they were still gnawing at me. Um, I would say it starts with, with my script, my idea. And um, once I get, oh, I'm sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, once I get that done, I mean, last, Last year, it was a very different situation with my last film than, than the one I'm currently working on right now. Um, last year, I did everything just, like, completely by myself. It was, like, by the, like, just by the seat of my pants. I, I, I didn't even know what I was doing. And it was, like, it turned out good, and I really like it. But, like, in my head, I was a mess. But, um, so it's hard to tell you where I start off because I was just, like, just anything I could do, I was just getting it done. So script, props, getting a cast. Um, I ended up, we charged a camcorder at Best Buy and then returned it and we were done. Like that was <laughs> genius. <laughs> Cause I was like, how are we going to do this? And you know, you can rent the nice camera and everything. And it was about the same price, but I was like, okay, well it doesn't have to be like, honestly, top of the line here. We're just, shooting this it's whatever (laughs) yeah you're trying to make the best with what you can do exactly it's not like you went okay i'm going to be an independent filmmaker and also have a budget of 20 million dollars you were like let's do this on a budget we we had a budget of like zero dollars awesome that's diy that's the true uh back to where we started our conversation a true punk style actually yeah and i just uh, the actors were were all either like okay uh, my brother-in-law, my best friend, my friend, my husband, and I'm just like, wear what you want to wear. However you are the character. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. 
So and we did it in my backyard. It was just it's it's ten minutes short. So it's just in my backyard. It's oh, I'm in it too. I forgot. I always forget that I'm. I didn't want to be in it, but I couldn't. That was the other thing. I couldn't find the like fourth actress, and I was like, I guess it has to be me. It has so, to be you. I mean, you stepped <laughs> yeah. up. You had to be the Kevin Smith of your own movie. Right. Yeah. Did you, you have so, any talking I mean, role? I'm sorry. Say it again. Did you have a talking role? I did. Yeah. I gave myself the least amount of lines, though. Awesome. That's the way to Which do it. Which I should add that I I do play my own character, too. That I that is Her name is Vampa Delombra, and that's the, the person who's, I guess, creating the movie. Awesome. So it's like almost an alter ego type part of you. Yes. I love that. So I'm in, I'm in segments of the last movie and then this new movie as that character introducing the movie. So I'm kind of like the, the horror host of my own movie. That's badass. That's got like a, like a Tales from the Crypt-esque vibe to it or Vampira. Of course, yeah. And I, I do hope that I, I have another short after this one that I plan. So I'll have three all together, and I'm hoping to put to kind of make to turn it into a, like an anthology, so it'll actually be a full length when I'm done. Sweet, yeah, anthology style movies, few and far between. Yeah, and they're they're usually really good too. Even because if you know if you don't like one segment, you might like the other one. So they usually they're usually good. I usually like them anyway. So where do you? Okay, this is a two part question. Where do you release your movie for people to see it? Like, is it online, I'm guessing? Your short? Yeah, my, the first film called uh-huh. Cannabis Cannibals is on YouTube right now. Love the name. Thank you. What's the premise? Um, I feel like I know, but I need to know. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What's the premise of the movie? Like, I feel like I need the synopsis. Even though I kind of feel like I could figure it out by just the title, but I feel like I could also be completely wrong. Well, I don't want to give any any spoilers. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> so all I'm going to say, you know, is that it's about some friends who like to smoke cannabis and they they may or may not like to feast on human flesh. Oh my gosh, it's brilliant. I love it. I can't wait to watch this. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so then the next part of that two-part question, you release it online. I don't know if it's YouTube or wherever. Or your website, possibly. Do you also like um, send this to any of the different like Sundance Film Festival type places or places that have, you know, new up and coming? I try, is it Tribeca? I think is one of the other ones that does film festival. Uh, did you submit it anywhere? I submitted it to a few local ones. I haven't gotten into any of them yet. So I will. I mean, there's a couple more I'm still waiting to find out about. Excellent. So I don't know. It's, yeah, I, I, I was going to say, I'm guessing that that's one of those things yet again where you almost kind of have to know somebody or have an instance where someone is pulling for you so your stuff actually gets looked at. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, I that, that's again with the rejection. It's like I, I kind of want to know why I didn't get picked because I know there's so many reasons, not even, you know, just because they don't like it. It's there's so many factors, so. Absolutely. But it does cost money to. Oh yeah, to that, submit that, a lot of them. So that's why I've been doing the like local ones, the ones that are like five, ten bucks or cheap or free. 
Yeah, I mean, and another that's a great thing because it's still furthering and getting your name out there and getting your product out there, getting it into new eyes. You don't know who's pulling for you. Somebody might see your thing, go, ah, not for this, but I could maybe help her be down the road to this other thing. You totally. know, and and that's ultimately what it's all about is the networking and the connections and 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 um, a rising tide raises all ships. I do believe is the is the old adage. So. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Cannabis Cannibals was your first official independent film released, and I feel like I've seen at least I know, and I know you were also just talking about it. You're, have you just finished casting for the next film, or you're working on casting? Did I see? I well, I actually am kind of working on casting one more role for Murder Pool. Oh, excellent! Just one more role. I'm kind of in in talks with one person to see if. If if uh, she's gonna do it, um, but I've already shot the Vampa segments for it, and I am supposed to be shooting next Saturday, a week from tomorrow, some scenes with some actors I that have already locked down. So excellent. So at this point, you know, you make your first short, and you kind of like you said, it was off the rails. You're all by yourself, and you're struggling and trying to get everything accomplished, and you're kind of like pushing the broom as you're going through. You're like, oh, I can do props today. I can do this tomorrow. I can do this then. And then just like getting it all done. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing the second time around, you're a little bit more, um, you have a little bit more of a system. You're kind of putting this in place to just make the workload less on you, I would assume. In- yeah. I mean, the day I was done shooting Cannabis Cannibals, I was already like, okay, next time. I know I'm doing this, this, and this, and I'm not doing that, that, and that. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, this time around, I ended up meeting some uh, a production company, Sundown Pictures, who are local to me. And they liked my ideas and want to help me do it. So they're going to, they're picking up some of the slack for me, thankfully. That's excellent. And, yeah. And I've, I've actually been. Helping them too. I'm uh, going to be acting in one of their movies coming up this summer. Radical. So, so you're staying very busy in that regard. Uh, are mm-hmm. you still doing the camera? Are you you're not obviously going to go to Best Buy and borrow a camera? You're you're going to like? Did you rent down a camera this time, or did you buy a no, camera the, for yourself? The uh, the the independent uh, company I'm working with now has equipment that we're going to use. Oh, that's excellent. I know. I was really happy to, to meet them. They're really cool people, too. So Excellent. Th- that's awesome. Awesome. Uh, okay, so in your journey, because I, I know we're not done talking film, but we're going to build to some more stuff here. You're a punk fan, and, I, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm definitely curious where that comes from, when that started. Your journey into music, I guess, is a good way to say that. So I'm going to let you kind of take the floor for a second and uh, fill us in. All right. Well, this is this is heavy. The music thing. Okay. I mean, again, with my parents, my mom really into music. My dad not so much. He was the movie nut, but um, my mom loved music. Motown in the house constantly. I never was a huge fan of that, and Beatles too. And I never was a really big fan of the Beatles. Motown, I like kind of. But once I got to middle school kind of branched off my own. I don't know how it happened, but I started listening to like 
Green Day, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana. That, that you know that I'm dating myself. Everyone's gonna know how old I am now. But uh, those are the stuff I got into, like on my own. Just I guess through the radio and MTV. Um, Nirvana was a big one, and I I read the that Come As You Are book about all about Nirvana and. A lot of the bands I got into were actually bands that Kirk Cobain mentioned that he liked. And they, those became bands I liked more than Nirvana, honestly. Like L7 was one that got really big with me. Um, my, my friend's dad had a record collection around that time, too. That's how I got into The Doors and Led Zeppelin and Classic Rock. Around, and to be honest, I didn't like punk. For a long time. And I think Green Day was maybe the one punk band I liked. Fair enough. And I had really, really liked the song Mother when it came out. Like in the 90s, the live one, whenever yeah. that was. Yeah, and I was had like a friend. 92 or 93, if my memory is good. It was probably later than that because I remember I was in high school. So I was probably a few years behind that. But okay, okay. I loved it. I was obsessed with it. My friend was like, well, you like this, you have to listen to the Misfits because that's what Danzig did first. And that's really, you know, the awesome thing he did much better than any of this. So your friend turned you on to the Misfits. Yeah. Well, I put it on. I didn't like it. Like I put it on for like one second. He gave me a collection, I believe. And I put it on and I was like, nope, nope, nope. Just skipping them. And I put like tool on or something after that. Like I... It was too, like, I needed something more, like, epic and, you know. Big sound. I don't want to call Tool pretentious, but. No, I think Tool has a, okay, I guess this is, maybe this is going to make me sound pretentious, but I don't care. Even when I'm listening to The Misfits, The Misfits are very basic. There's not a lot to grasp onto, but what is there is gold, right? But with Tool, there's so many complex parts to grasp onto that you're constantly in like a state of flux with your brain because you're hearing, oh, man, that bass is amazing. Oh, listen to what the drums are doing. Oh, shit, Maynard singing in this certain key and it sounds fucking stellar. I can't even stand it. Mm-hmm. What is going on? So when the Misfits first hit your ears, you're just like, what is this basic shit? It's exactly what I thought. I was like, this is punk. This is just simple crap. I don't know what he was... This isn't the same guy. Because he wasn't... I don't know what he was thinking. Let me put on Danzig 1 again. Go back and to it, a classic. Took, yeah, it took like it took a while. And then I don't know what happened. Somehow, I was just like... If, when I was probably a little older, around 18, 19, I was like, what was I thinking? This is amazing. I felt the same way about the Ramones, too. My same friend loved the Ramones. And I was like, this is really annoying. All this guy is doing is talking about what he wants and what he doesn't want. I thought every song was just, I don't want to, I want to be sedated. I don't want to go down to the base. And I'm like, no, it's too much. But I don't know what happened. Then I started liking, liking that. Now, it's interesting with your time frame here because you're getting out of high school, which means... You had an actually, and and not a lot of people talk about this, but let's just go for the gold here. You also got to experience the reincarnation of the Misfits as when, it was as it was happening. Because I mean, without without 
Glenn, right? Correct. Absolutely. So what was that like for you? Because you've obviously like you've you've listened to Danzig's music and now you're kind of getting into the Misfits a little bit and then the other stuff comes out. Oh, I hated it. It was just not for you at all. I thought it was such garbage. Yeah. Okay. So you instantly shut that down. Yeah. And you get lost in OG Misfits. And it, it, that's super interesting because my journey was flipped. I found Graves first, had no idea who Danzig was. And then as soon as I heard Danzig's music, I was sold and forgot what the other thing was even doing. You know? Um, uh-huh. But it's it's cool because the Misfits are so, I mean, they're literally responsible for so many facets. Is that where maybe some of your love for, be, and I, obviously you're probably a big fan of horror movies as well, but do you think that the horror punk style influences you at all when writing and creating your movies? You know, I would, I would... Probably say no, because now that you're saying this, I think I'm realizing what happened, why I started liking The Misfits. Sure. Because yeah. I realized that it was all about horror movies. Oh, when so had, once you I got had, the subject matter. Yes, and I would probably say it was the song Vampira, because I was like, this band has a song about Vampira. This is amazing. Sold. And then I started listening to everything else. And, you know, like I said, had growing up as a movie fan and my dad being a film nut, like he, he knew like every move to when I was growing up, he knew he was my IMDb. So I had watched a lot of that stuff with my dad before I ever heard anything by the misfits. So I mean, it's a little bit, I guess it's cyclical because you got this, you know, the the movies, inspired Danzig obviously he write he wrote the songs I like the songs because I like the movies it kind of I guess fuels me and it enhances it because you like both exactly and there's like a little bit of a special bond and I don't know if you're like me but if I'm watching an old horror movie and it's like let's say the crypt or any of the songs that uh, or any of the movies that inspired the songs the song in, internally plays a little bit in certain parts of the movies, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's that's actually like really pleasant right now to enjoy thinking of The Misfits doing a song about this movie right now. Of course, of course. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to jump back to your movies here now, just for a minute, because we're all over the place here. I know. <laughs> I, I feel like, uh, and this is... This is the one that we we talk about, but we don't talk super about. Okay, this is the voice of survival. So obviously one thing we try to talk about on this show is people's like trials and tribulations and things they've had to overcome. So now is the part where I'm going to say, what are some of the things you've overcome just in life that you've had to um, learn perseverance and learn patience and all the things that you probably utilize now in your current life? Um, well, I would say this, this whole journey of trying to get to the point I am right now to where I can, can, can actually call myself a filmmaker because I'm, I made a movie and I'm working on another one right now. Um, I, it it was like we said earlier, it was a dream I'd given up for years and the reasons why I had given it up, I, I 
it's it's hard to say it was a lot of things um I, I I think I think a lot of it maybe had to do with with the fear of rejection that we talked about earlier. The wondering if people are going to think my ideas are weird. I had had a couple moments at MPI where, uh, I, well, the big thing that happened was I we, I I had written a full length script. One of the assignments was to write a full length script, and you would kind of do a play uh, treatment for it and. People in the uh, who were on the program with you would buy into it, I guess, and you would create your teams that. And the script I wrote, people thought was so weird, no one wanted to work with me on it. And the people who got stuck with me were very obviously upset that they got stuck with me, and pretty much they didn't care about not, you know, letting me or what, how should I put it? They didn't care about not hurting my feelings, I guess, about it. And so that was, that was a discouragement. So kind of like getting over that, like, people might not like it. People might think it's weird. Like, am I weird because I wrote this? Like, is this not funny? Is it, am I just kind of creating something that's just going to be like, just garbage put into the world for no, for nothing other than just I want to like kill people on screen like you know all these things of like what am I doing like it, how are people going to respond to am I going to are people going to think I'm not the person I am based on what I'm showing through my art and a lot of it boils down to like you just can't think about it I think about one of my heroes as far as like art and filmmaking and that's David Lynch. And uh, one of the Twin things Peaks. that, Oh, hell yeah, that is that, that that's one of my biggest, I would say influences in, in life in general, not just filmmaking, but cool. I know yeah. we're going to talk yeah. about just in a few short minutes, continue on. Yes. But one of the great things about him is that I think he doesn't have that. He, he feels something and he goes for it. He knew he wanted the red room to be this to be a weird room with no walls and he just made it happen. He didn't think about too much about how how it can't happen or people are gonna think it's too weird. He just saw it in his head and he knew it had to happen and now we have this like iconic thing, you know? Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, I, I kind of took a lesson from him and I mean, not just him. There are other people who I look up to in that way. Um, I would say going back to, to Danzig, him, because there's a lot that he does that's very bizarre and weird and people don't like it, don't like him. But he, he don't care. He does it. He's an artist. He does it. He, he has the uh, the fearlessness thing down, I think. Yeah, he does. And I he think that's really does. and I think that's the same thing to be said with David Lynch. They don't have the inhibition of like what happens if this goes off the rails. They just mm -hmm. go, let's see what happens. And if and, it, oh, and if it goes off the rails, it'll be an interesting experience, you know. It's great when it goes off the rails too. That's the thing. Like as a fan, when you know, when something is so David Lynch, like my mind's going to melt. I am like in ecstasy. So, you know, I just, if I could, if, if one person 
watched something I did and they were like, oh my God, this is, and this is crazy. I can't believe someone thought of this and they put it on film and I just, I love it. Then I'm, I'm my, like, I'm just happy. My life has been worth it. If one person would feel that way about one thing I do, you know? Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I want to mention to our listeners, and you're going to have to make sure to remind me or I'll remind you, um, we're going to provide a link to the Cannabis Cannibals um, on the description for this episode. So people will literally be able to just click it directly from their from their podcast app and go right Wonderful. to your video. Um, and as soon as we're off here, I'm going to go watch it because I'm like, OK, I can't wait to watch this. It sounds like exactly my kind of movie. Um, so back up. David Lynchian conversation here because um, while I've not seen all of it, I've seen a lot of Twin Peaks. Sarah and Veronica love the show. They're always watching it. They're going to start a Twin Peaks podcast. So that's that's a real deal. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So they live life with a new motto, I guess. And everything can become a Twin Peaks moment. And I think you probably know that better than most people that you can just like walk into a room, into a situation that seems totally mundane to everyone else. But there's something about the situation that just screams like this is a David Lynch thing. He's in he's in the room right now making this happen. (laughs) What the fuck? Um, Or like you go to a gas station and see some lady who's like the cashier of the gas station. And for whatever reason, her creepy personality just screams like this is somebody from Twin Peaks for sure. Like what is going on? Do you also live that way? Kind of. Oh, of course. Oh, always. Every time I walk into a diner and it's, and it's, you know, there's, there's one person working there and it's, it's an 80 year old, you know, lady and a, with a ton of makeup on and, and she's in her, her waitress uniform. I'm, I'm like, Oh my God, did I walk into this onto the set? Is it happening? Am I and here? I get scared for a second. And then you're like, nope, it's just life. Yeah, and well, and that's that's you know what? That's the genius of David Lynch because he knows that like real life is like that. Real life is full of these moments that are awkward, embarrassing, too long. Just yeah, he know he he he's got He's got it. <laughs> I think you nailed it with awkward and embarrassing and too long for sure because he does. He knows how to make you uncomfortable in any of his scenes, even if it's uh-huh. not something that is like, look at the center of the screen where you're supposed to be looking. It's something off to the side that's mundane, like this lady who keeps dropping the dish rag a hundred times for no reason. She just can't hold the dish rag, you know? Right. So yeah. it, it's the bizarreness of it, and I, and I it's brilliant. It it is so refreshing to hear somebody say that David Lynch inspired them to also like make their own movies because now looking through your lens, I will see it with a little bit more of a clear perspective. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? And that's huge. So aside from David Lynch, are there any other, I don't even know if iconic is the word, but are there any other creators of movies that have really inspired your style or your, emotional feelings or flow when you're writing and creating movies. John Waters is the other big one. Awesome. He's just been, a, a, again, another like hero of mine. 
in that he's someone else who just he's not embarrassed of his his weird and perverted mind at all. And there is even he even himself will look back on things and go, I don't know what I was thinking. And he just laughs. And I just can't like that to me is so heroic. <laughs> what do you think of the John Waters movies that uh, obviously inspired you? What do you think would be some of the ones that inspired you the most from his catalog? Because, I mean, there's a lot to pull from in, in John Waters uh, catalog. Uh, well, my favorite movie of his, I mean, it's hard to pick. I, I'm like, I'm such a huge John Waters fan. It's like a joke. I've met him multiple times. I've Whoa, read all that's his books. Awesome. I just, I, I, I worship and adore him. So it's hard. It's hard to like pick one movie, but, um, I guess if I had to, it would probably be polyester. Oh, excellent. Um, I think that came out in like 80 or 81, 82, somewhere around there. Uh, I think it was 80. Awesome. Uh, I know when I think, you said John Waters, the first movie that came to my head was Cecil B. Demented. Oh, I, mean, I love that one that too, That movie yeah. is trippy and crazy and bizarre, and I will never forget watching that for the first time. It was a very strange night and experience for sure. Uh, <laughs> okay. Was that the first John Waters movie you'd seen? Oh, I um, no, I don't think so. I'm trying to think back to his catalog. I'm actually going to pull that up now because I feel like I'll go, oh, I forgot that movie was of his design. Uh, let's see here. Looking at the list. No, I think Crybaby and Hairspray were probably the first two I saw in no particular okay. order, which a, a little bit more mainstream, obviously, Crybaby being the, you know, the Johnny Depp flick, um, which... Weird, because I don't really even like Johnny Depp, but for some reason, that's like a movie that definitely was in my childhood. Um, but I, I did, I did enjoy Crybaby quite a bit, which is strange. I know, um, but I digress. Back to you. We're not done here, obviously. What have been some of the challenges directing movies um, with people who were there to take direction? Like, tell me what to do, man. What do I do? Like, what are some of the like the the hardships that come with, especially with, you know, with your first film, you were mentioning how it was people you knew, your family, your friends, people that were close to you. And you got to kind of be like, hey, this is how it has to fucking be because it's my vision. So what's that like for you becoming like the driver of this whole thing? You know, it was something that I was pretty anxious about. I wasn't sure how people would react to me, especially, you know, my friends and, um, but it was really easy. Once I got there, I, I mean, I have a pretty clear vision of what I want to happen. And I am found that I'm, I'm pretty good at telling people what, what is going to happen. And they know what I need. I think that it was helpful that the people I used were close to me this first time. Because not only do they know my personality and they they know I love what I love and I'm what my eye is going for, but I also know how to communicate with them to I guess get them to perform in the way that I want them to. Yeah, you can so, charge them emotionally based on how your guys' relationships have already been created. Exactly, and personality type too. Absolutely. Like I knew I knew out of the group of people 
who's going to be the one who's going to, you know, going to improv the most and who I'm going to let go and who, you know, is going to want the words for me to, for me to tell them what words to say. Oh, so that's it's, another it's, thing that's got to be hard, too. I didn't even think about that, like how you script structuring and what you just said with people who um, can improv. I didn't even put yeah. that together. Continue. Uh, it, so it's just a matter of of each individual, and I think that's probably I, – I mean, that could be a challenge. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a challenge for me. It's not a challenge, but it's something that I definitely, you know, think about. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to ask another directory question. See, it's funny, as a filmmaker and, you know, with your journey and what you had said earlier, you've taken on every task in the first go, so you kind of have an idea of what every part of the job requires. Mm-hmm. What do you think the hardest part of being, generally speaking, a filmmaker and all the things you've experienced, what's the toughest part of it? I mean, because it seems like you had your directing down pretty easily and you knew how to communicate with your actors and get them to to show up and bring the kind of performance you wanted and understood the kind of people that they were and if they were comfortable riffing or, or have to be by the book. Um, was it props? I'm, I'm not sure really actually the, what, where you would go with that. Um, I, I would say the most, the most difficult and most stressful thing is the planning. The, the minutia of details, the pre-production stuff. Little thing. Oh, I'm sorry. What? The, like the pre the pre production stuff. All of the getting all your yes. ducks in a row. Yes, because there's just so many little things that you forget, and you have to go through the list five, six times, and then you're like, oh, I keep forgetting about you know this stupid prop. Like I need a hose in this thing, and you just take it for granted that you need a hose. It it takes like you just have to keep looking at it and just be really detail oriented. You're like, damn it, and I have he- to go to my house and get a hose? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Why didn't I write this down? Yes, yeah. Did that really happen? Was I it mean, actually I, the hose? Like, I, I feel no, like you, that I, was so random. It was, well, it was because it's part of something I need for the shoot for next next week. Oh. Right before we got on, uh, started doing this, I was actually working on a prop list for next Saturday. Wow. So I'm like... I got the hose on my brain, like, okay, we're going to make, it should be at the location. Like, but I can't take that for granted. Bring a backup you know? hose. Yeah. Well, that's just one of the things. So planning in the pre-production, especially when you're taking it on by yourself, is the hardest part of this because you've got to, as you said, focus on all the minutia of the detail, make sure everything has been gone over a hundred times so that when you go to execute, that's, and that's the thing I don't think a lot of people appreciate, and I know this running the Journey into Comics Network, I've learned to appreciate planning is everything. Of it's course. so much everything because if you can get your plan down accurately, execution is not a problem. Mm-hmm. But every single thing that you don't plan for or you don't even consider in your step is just another thing that's going to slow you down. It's going to make you unconfident about yourself. It's going to make you unsure if what you're doing is the right thing. Mm-hmm. Most people pl- take the planning thing for granted. So I, I definitely yeah. appreciate that that was the answer you slung at me. So 
continuing on, and we're going to kind of bridge these two gaps a little bit because we were talking about the Misfits and Danzig, and then we got the film thing, and then there's like the middle. So what do you do about music in movies? How does that, that's got to be something that you take into account. Do you use a lot of music in your films, or how does that, do you outsource? Uh, um, well, what I ended up doing for Cannabis Cannibals is I used uh, some free domain music. I, I got it from, I think, freesound.org. It's in the credits of Cannabis Cannibals, if anyone's interested. But um, I, I used that for sound effects and for music. I wanted to use some licensed music. Like in when I was, you know, thinking about it, at first I had all these ideas for songs I wanted to use. And, you know, and I, I even had like a dancing song I wanted to use as uh, as uh, Vampa's theme. But then it was like, I can't pay for this. <laughs> not gonna happen maybe one day but not now so i just have been searching for free domain stuff i also had my husband write um some original tracks so he'll probably do that for the next one too excellent that sounds cool um i feel like that's one thing that a lot of people take for granted in in movies especially looking at it from the filmmaker's perspective is that music so often, without people consciously even paying attention to it, sets the tone for everything. Yeah, you have to have it or else it's like weird. It it weirdly makes the scene more believable. Yeah, because it allows you to get lost in it. Obviously, we're not walking around our day-to-day lives hearing dun-dun, dun-dun, whop, <laughs> whop. You know, like none of those things are really happening. So it 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 submerses you in the fact that you're watching a film when the music yes. is is on and you get the right tone and feeling and emotion. Um, I feel like you are just like extremely talented to, to, just, to just have the foresight and the ability to take all of that onto your own plate and just handle it. Like, first go, I'm going to do it, whatever. Like, I feel like a lot more people should aspire to be like you and just really go for it. You know, like what what are people holding back for, right? Yeah. I mean that was that was what got me. I just you know, it so there were a lot of nights when I was getting my master's degree, getting my bachelor's degree, working, you know, retail where I would just be up and I would think about I would think about cannabis cannibal. And I think got that written. I was gonna do that. Why aren't I doing that? And I just put it out of my head. Put it out of my head. And it's like, why? Why was I? There was no, it's like, you, you got to work at something in life. Like, I could sit there and I could work really hard and I could work really hard at becoming, like, I was working at GameStop at the time as a third key manager. Oh, my I could God. Work really- what is this life? I was a third key at GameStop. Were you really? <laughs> Swear to God. Yes, I was in 2007 into 2009. Yep. Uh, that's that's when I was too. <laughs> that's creepy. That's genuinely creepy. I started creepy. in 2008. I started. Yeah, I started in 07, like May of 07. And then by like mm-hmm. that first Black Friday, I was already third key. And that is very oh, no. strange. Weird. Okay, continue that on. Is what I, started, I started, right, you're, oh, that's really weird. I started in the summer of 2007. And yeah, after uh, seasonal, I became third key in 2008. Yeah, that's very wild. That's crazy. Um, of all the you were saying retail, and I'm just like, okay, I'm not. I'm gonna get to that question in a second. Like, what retail jobs? 
And then you just said GameStop, and it like kind of threw me off track a little bit because now I feel like there's a million other questions I could ask you about. Like, we understand this working at GameStop. There's like the worst types of people come into that place. Oh my god! Is there any one story that you remember that like sticks with you to this day because someone was awful or it was like an impossibly ridiculous situation you can't believe you literally witnessed? Oh my god! There's so many. Nate, you have no idea. <clears throat> oh, I do. I really do. I'm sitting here like, oh, I could, t- I could talk about that. I could bring that up too. Or like that happened. Or Like in two words, I could freak you out. We had a guy that came and we called him Roach Cube. Oh, I know what that means. Uh-huh. You, you, yes, you do. <laughs> and yes, it was. Exact- I, that was like the first week I worked there. This dude brought in this GameCube that was filled with living cockroaches. Well, then you got broken in. You knew what to expect, I guess. Yeah, my expectations were set extraordinarily low, and there was no turning back, you know. Uh, but back to it. What are some things that you experienced there? Because these are, I mean, these are stories that most people don't even know how to relate to. Because I feel like GameStop, even though it's a retail job, it's definitely its own unique feeling of a job. Yeah, it definitely was. And I had worked at um, other places that kind of I thought were going to be similar. Like, I. My first job was it was Suncoast. Do you know? Do you remember remember Suncoast? A uh, record shop or like CDs and stuff, right? No, it was movies. Movies. Suncoast was movies. My bad. Yes. Okay, I do remember that. Yeah, I worked there, and then I also worked at Spencer's. Okay. So I was like, when I worked at GameStop, I kind of thought it would be pretty similar, similar clientele, and it was, but it was. I don't know. It's kind of like a pawn shop too almost so you get that the trade-in type thing oh man but, and you get some weird experiences with that oh boy yeah um i i mean i weird experiences i guess the, one of the things that there's so like I, i'm having a hard time like picking one story to tell you because they are just rushing through my but one time this girl comes in she's wearing a bathrobe what okay she's wearing a yeah this terry cloth like nasty bathrobe okay and she just opens it, and she's like, she's got like snakes wrapped around her. What? And that like really lizard. happened? Yeah, and she was like, these are my pets. She was like, I don't know, a teenager. She was, you know, she was, she was wearing like, I don't know, like just pajamas or something, like a t-shirt. She just had a snake wrap under her robe. She just opens it. What? Uh, that's and I just was like, "Oh my god!" I, wh- I, I didn't. I don't. I don't even remember what happened after that because that's as far as my memory went. I don't. Man, and it's funny that you say that because, uh, well, obviously I wasn't there for that story, but it's one of those things that as soon as you started talking, I was like, "I hundred percent believe this. I know it happened," <laughs> because the ridiculous shit that you experienced at GameStop, it it rivals any other experience I've had as a human. Oh my God. Did you guys get the Battletoads pranks? No, you know, no, no one was really in on the, on the like prank calling thing for us so much. Uh, I will say we had a, I think, what was that fucking video game called? Was it Aragon or something? It had a dragon on the cover. I can't remember what it was called, but we drew all over this like pennied out, 
guide and we Uh would ship it to other stores when we would send them stuff. And sometimes stores would just send it right back. It's really funny. (laughs) So we would just ship it to another store. We're like, well, maybe they'll keep it. No. Was it, I can't remember if it was Aragon. I don't, I'm going to, I'll have to look that up later. It Um, sounds like a familiar name of a bad game. It definitely was a bad game. I will say (laughs) that uh, at least in my experience in the era that you and I both worked at GameStop, like some of the best modern games ever came out during that time. Oh yeah. Tons of good games came out when I worked there. I mean, Bioshock, the first Assassin's Creed. Oh, uh, Bioshock. Love that. I worked the Halo three launch and then worked the very next morning at 7am. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think uh, other amazing games that came out in that time. Left for Mass dead. Effect. Mass effect. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Bioware's mass effect. Um, mm-hmm, love that one. Oh, a lot of good ones. Mirror's Edge. I loved that oh, game. I never finished that one. That was I started. To, there was so many. See, and we since we you remember you were allowed to check them out. For oh three yeah. Days. So a lot of games I played for you know hours and then never got to finish because I had to return and I wasn't going to buy it or whatever. Did you guys have a whole drawer for the employees? Oh yeah. Put all the best shit in the whole drawer. Yep. Yep. Get, get it when you can afford it. That's all you can do. Uh, yep. Man. We, you know, we were we were kind of a unique GameStop too because all three managers were women. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so we were like, it was interesting. We were a lot of people's favorites because it was either you know the guys who want to go in and they're like, ooh, there's ladies here at this one, <laughs> and they know what they're talking about. What the hell? Yeah. Or it would be you know moms who were like, oh, thank God I can come in here and it's another woman. And I can relate who's to you. Who's not going to intimidate me? Absolutely. So we were, we were kind of, we were well known in the area. There, were, I don't know if your area was like this, but there were like five game saps within like a two mile radius. Oh no! Uh, the GameStop I worked at in Danville, Illinois, was the only GameStop in fifty miles in any direction. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, I was the only male manager that worked there as a third key. Sarah, from our band as well, was uh, was the assistant manager. And then we had a manager above us, Liz. So uh-huh. um, I definitely know and totally respect your perspective of being one of the lady managers and getting respected and understood. Also, though, I will say I'm sure you also dealt with a lot of shitty people on the same token because – you're a lady, so they were trying oh, to course. be shitty to you and talk down and be awful. Cause... Oh, I've, I had, and I'm sure, you know, your manager and, and Sarah probably both have had this too, where people have literally said to me, okay, well, can I talk to a, a man about it? Yep. I was always the guy because they'd be like, okay, well, he's going to tell you the same damn thing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I or would. Or I would love it where I'd be like, there isn't one here right now. Sorry. Because then we had a couple employees who were females too. So. Oh. Awesome. Love that. Like, there isn't one here right now. Sorry. Tough luck. You're going to have to come back another time. Yeah. It's like, that reminds me of this story when uh, this dude came in and he was being a shitbag to Sarah and he's like yelling and screaming because Metal Gear Solid 3 wasn't working on his PlayStation 2. Uh-huh. So she tells him, she's like, okay, well, we'll do this, she, you know, all these things, whatever. And she tells him, like, I don't really know what to tell you. I put the disc in, the disc works. Take it home. It should work. So she gives the guy over to me because he's being a shitbag. And I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, my fucking Metal Gear Solid 3 doesn't work. And I was like, okay, well, are you hitting circle? And he goes, no. 
And I was like, have you ever played a fucking Metal Gear game, dude? The first thing they tell you is it's circle, not X. He looked at me so mad and just left. It was it was very rewarding moment. Um, yeah. Man, it's crazy. Retail's hard, especially, and and I'm sure you know this too. Retail is hard when you're chasing your dreams and people like mm-hmm. that exist. Oh, I know. It's just like, why? Why do people like this even? How are you alive right now? Why are you so awful? There, there are some real shitheads. And then, you know, there are, and then to just kind of, I guess, add to it, there are some people who were great customers. Absolutely. I look back and I, I think you brightened my day in a sea of, you know, horrible people. And even some people I'm still friends with, you know, on, on social media. Yeah. Or you like, um, I remember uh, this lady I helped. I, something simple. I just helped her get a Wii in her car in the middle of Christmas when her mm-hmm. kid was in the store with her. Mm-hmm. And she didn't want him to know the Wii was going to be for Christmas. So I had to like cleverly sneak this fucking thing out into her car. Small mm-hmm. gesture. Took me like five minutes. Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. The way she reacted has literally continued to impact my life because she was overly grateful and just like moved to tears that someone would actually, in a retail job, take the time out of their day to actually consider the bigger picture for this little dude who is going to have a great Christmas now. Oh, that's so sweet. And it like changed me too because then I'm like always thinking in that same headset, like how can I help impact people in a positive way to where even if it doesn't mean much to me, it means everything to them. Yeah. Uh, so – it, I mean, I was 20 when I was working at GameStop, so that, like, hit me and held on to me so much. Uh, yeah. Man, I'm so shocked that we have all these crazy, like, similarities and whatnot. It's, like, I know. totally blowing my mind right now. Uh, I know. That's, that is crazy. Okay, well, before we get out of here, okay, I typically like to do this last little part of the show. I don't do it with everybody, but I feel like it's going to be interesting with you. Is there anything in your journey so far that we haven't covered or discussed that you would like to bring up and start discussing before we wrap this episode. Oh boy. We've covered so much. Ah, We tried. Well, we talked about, let me recap. We talked about, you know, how I, how my, my initial interest in film, a little bit about what I've done so far, my retail, my being an archivist, going to school, uh, I have a question. Yeah. I didn't ask you what college you went to to get your bachelor's and your master's. Oh, I went to Wayne State University in Detroit for both of them. Oh, excellent. I had my bachelor's degree in film studies, which I got. We could talk about that for a minute. Yes, because please. that's different. That's different than like when I went to film school earlier and I, I had learned about production. Um, film studies is more like theory. And like scholarly criticism, and I loved doing that. That was that was really great. Oh, that's like um, more when people break down. Uh, I'm guessing. I don't know. And you and you did it. I didn't. Uh, I'm just trying to elaborate here. Uh, so that it kind of probably entailed a little bit of like uh, you said scholarly criticism, watching yes. a film and dissecting it for everything it is, every aspect of it listening to every much. every cue of music listening to every line of dialogue looking at 
how every ounce of the thing is shot, determining if lighting could have been better or if something was maybe a little bit out of focus when it shouldn't have been or weird transitions that don't make sense. There's a lot of like little minutia, back to that word, that comes mm-hmm. from that side of your degree, I'm guessing. Well, it, when, when you're doing – there's so much about film theory that you have to really pick one area and go with it. You can write a whole book on like the lighting in one movie and people have. Sounds boring though, right? I mean, to many people it might be. And I've tried to tell people about the stuff I've written about, you know, in school and the things we talk about. Most people are not very interested. Like your average film fan is not really interested in like the like Freudian con the theories of like why characters are doing certain things or um or like an interpretation of the mise-en-scene of 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 why people are or why things are set up the way they are on the screen and what that's saying to the audience all the subversive symbolism yeah and and the most interesting to me and I, i i do use this when i'm writing and when i'm directing is like um spectatorship what's happening to the audience when they're watching the movie. Yeah, very well said. How How is it affecting the people that are actually taking it in? And one of my favorite concepts that we would talk about is um, phenomenology. And if something has a phenomenological effect on you, um, that ex- that is like, for example, going back to Twin Peaks... Awesome. In in that first pilot episode, and I believe this happens in Fire Walk with me too, when Dale Cooper, Agent Dale Cooper, is pulling that little letter from underneath that girl's finger fingernail, and you hold on to your fingernails because you feel like your fingers are like your fingernails are being pulled up. Yeah, like they've been violated, even though they haven't. Yes, that's. <sighs> That's like one of my favorite things to talk about in film, film theory. It's, they call it a phenomenological effect. Anything that gives you like this physical sensation because uh, you watched it happen. Uh, this also can be said when someone is getting like um, in Dexter, when people are getting the scalpel to their cheek. Yeah. And you like grab your cheek like, no, don't cut me there. Exactly. Ugh. Uh, you know, I had, oh, I wanted to say you brought up Fire Walk with me. That's actually on the agenda for Sunday. The girls have never seen it. Uh, They're in for a treat. (laughs) Well, we tried to watch it, okay? And I got um, a hold of what I thought was Fire Walk with me. Okay. Put it on. Watch the whole hour and 20-some-odd-minute thing in sheer confusion. Because it's David Lynch. He's weird. He does weird shit, you know? Yeah. Come to find out we had watched the Missing Pieces um, bonus features. Oh. And didn't see the movie at all. Okay. <laughs> so, and they were watching going, well, this is weird, but like David Lynch is weird. So maybe this is just some art that's really weird. Firewalk with me um, is, uh, you know, maybe it's just a weird one. Not a lot of people talk about it because it's the prequel or whatever. Um, but yeah, we're, we're actually going to finally watch Firewalk with me. And I'm going to try to actually start watching the series after we watch Firewalk with me to see if you can watch it as a prequel and it makes any sense. Can I tell you? 
Yeah, sure. I don't care. I mean, you should watch the show before you watch the movie. Really? Yeah. Is it because? Go ahead. There is a lot of. There is a bunch of. There's a lot of things in the movie that get explained to you. That happen in the show. That are things that are, you learn by circumstance, maybe, uncovered throughout the the show's first season. No, I, well, yeah, yeah. There is a there is actually a big spoiler in the movie if you don't watch that first season and part and most of the second season that it's gonna ruin it for you. Whoa. Okay. Well, now it looks like my Sunday is going to be changed. I'll probably do some <laughs> podcast editing or something that is not watching that movie. I'm glad I said something because yeah, d- yeah. I, I kind of uh, get in uh, the weird. I get in a weird headspace. I don't know if you're a fan of Star Wars at all, per se. Um, you know, Star Wars is something that I used to be a huge fan of, and it's so oversaturated that I'm don't care anymore. But I, but like the first six movies, I know very well. Well, the first six movies are what I'm about to talk to is based off of because there was a thing. I don't know if you've ever done this or heard of this called Machete Order. No. Okay, so Machete Order answers the great question of how do you do the first six Star Wars movies cleverly and let someone watch them without spoiling anything? Kind of the conundrum you're bringing up, right? Yes. Because if you watch the first three movies, you kind of already know that Luke and Vader are related. There's no denying that. Of course. So how do you keep that suspense? You do this thing called Machete Order. You watch A New Hope first, Empire Strikes Back second. Then you go and create what you call the flashback sequence where you watch the second and third Star Wars. They actually say you don't technically need to watch Phantom Menace, but I liked the movie, so you could Mm -hmm. watch one, Mm -hmm. two, and three in order. But you watch them as a flashback telling Anakin's story so that when you get to uh, Return of the Jedi, literally the movie is the final chapter of both Anakin and Luke, well, at that point, wrapping up together. And it's like beautiful symmetry. It's so well done if you if you get an opportunity to watch those wow. six movies like in machete order, which is out of order, because it keeps you also the surprise of Luke being related to Vader happens at the end of Empire Strikes Back, and you're like, what the fuck? And then you go back and learn about Anakin, and you're like, oh, now I get why it's like this tortured dude that's having a hard time connecting with his son, and it all makes more sense. So. Back to what we were saying about Twin Peaks. I'm so glad that I brought this up to you because I'm a fan of doing things, watching them out of order to see if they make more interesting sense. Yeah. That would have been a failure on my behalf. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I think if I think that it would probably – the prequel does explain a lot. and I, But I think that it's more fun to have the mystery built up with that with that first season or two season and a half, I would say, of Twin Peaks. Almost complete two seasons. But they deal with the Laura Palmer. But um there's probably a, a, a machete order that you could do that would be pretty interesting. But I don't know. I don't know off the top of my it head would, how you would, would do it. Like there's probably certain like Watch this episode, this episode, this episode, then watch the movie, then watch, you know, there's probably is, maybe if you looked at, if you Googled it, you could find someone had, had done something like that. Like, could tell you in order to watch everything. Oh, I'm going to have to but, do that now. Yeah. 
Like I said, I'm I, I, I'm yeah. weird about that. I uh, it's interesting to me too that movies can do that. Like there are movies that are in a series that you can jumble up and even still tell a cohesive story. Like yeah. they obviously didn't plan to do it like that, but someone was probably really stoned at home one day and when I'm going to watch these movies in a way that makes <laughs> sense to me, fuck everybody else, you know? Yeah. And that's how it was created. So, I, you know, I don't I'm not sure, but uh before we get out of here, as always, I got to do kind of like the like the plugs and whatnot. So you can check out Journey into Comics Network, where you can find the voice of survival at journeyintocomics.com or on all the different podcasting platforms, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Google Play Music, or Spotify. Just search Journey into Comics Network. You get all nine shows, Journey into Comics, Poor Rapport, Voice of Survival, Brews with Dudes, um, Podcastrophe, Adulting Ain't Easy, Kids for Sale. I'm missing... Two of them. What two am I missing? Oh, Journey into Wrestling and Foodies Watching Movies, my other shows. Duh. Uh, lastly, go to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash journey into comics. Give us a dollar. Get early access to all the episodes coming out on the network every day of the week. Or give us three bucks. Get early access and exclusive episodes of podcasts that you can only find at our Patreon. Mara, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was great. It was a blast. And I feel like we could probably do like 10 more podcasts just on the things we connected with, especially like literally a whole episode dedicated to like thinking about all the different GameStop stories we had. Oh, my God. Yes. It would be amazing and incredible and hilarious. And and, and I'm sure a lot of funny stuff happened to you that you once you thought <laughs> yes. about it, you would be like, oh, shit, that happened too. I remember. Um, I'm going to be thinking about it all night now. Good, you should. Memories are going to pop up. You'll you'll write a fucking movie about some like zombie werewolf that worked at GameStop or some shit. I like, should. <laughs> uh, or like got trapped in the system lock and turned into a zombie or something. That's interesting. Um, creepy ass <laughs> yes. system locks. Anyways, where can people find your work? I mean, obviously, we're going to put a link in the description, as I said, but just verbally, where can they find your work? Um, I have a link on my Instagram which is SCS underscore Babylon to Cannabis Cannibals, which is on YouTube. I think if you search Cannabis Hello, sorry. Oh, it's all right. You were saying about searching Cannabis Cannibals. Uh, yeah, if you, if you do a search in YouTube for Cannabis Cannibals, it should, it should be in, in, in there. Excellent. Well, on YouTube. Okay, cool. Well, like I said, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of The Voice of Survival. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. It, it genuinely was. Uh, I'm really grateful that we got to have this conversation. Uh, you guys will be checking this out. Um, well, from when you and I are st where you and I are standing a week from today. Uh, but you and I recorded this on Friday the 13th, which was awesome and superstitious and weird. And I loved that. So yes uh, me too extra special shout out to that this has been the voice of survival i've been nate we will see you guys next time later <laughs>